Let's go together in prayer. Father, we come before you and Father, I just thank you for the grace and mercy you've given us in this moment, just allowing to be in your presence. We're running to your loving arms, your arms of grace, your arms of forgiveness, your arms of faithfulness, your arms of strength and provision. Father, my prayer is that you alone will be glorified in this time as we open your scriptures, that you continue to speak to our hearts, continue to draw us into your presence, that your kingdom would come and will would be done in each and every life. Father, I praise you that you know everyone's current situation and relationship with you. You know those who are your children and those who are here who are seeking you and trying to figure this out. So Father, let your word speak to all of our hearts and where we are. For, for your children, let us grow in our relationship with you, our understanding of you, what you've called us to do. For those who are here seeking, Father, ask your spirit, just bring them to a place of repentance. That they would know you as their Lord and Savior, that they would have their eternal destiny changed forever, simply because of your love. Lord, as we open up your word, allow your spirit just to open it up to us, we may have an understanding we have not had before, not just to have more knowledge but to be moved by it and transformed by it. I should forgive us where we have failed you in this time of singing songs of praise and worship to you. If it has not been done in spirit and truth, but Lord, let us now in this moment love you with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, that you alone would be glorified in this time. But I pray this all in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, who sits upon the throne. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you or whatever medium you're using, a tablet, phone, uh, we're going to be in the Gospel of John chapter 2, as you can see behind me. Uh, we'll be in verses 1 through 11. Um, we are looking at the very first recorded miracle of Jesus in turning water to wine at a wedding in Cana of Galilee. Uh, again, we're going to be in the chapter, chapter 2 of the Gospel of John, and this is a very interesting event because it's only recorded... In John's Gospel, which has led many to wonder why John uh, put it in here, or was led to put it in here, and why Matthew, Luke, and Mark uh, were led to omit it from their Gospels. Uh, just a little context, a little background. As we're walking through the story of Jesus and in the Gospel of John, John frequently or always refers to Jesus' miracles as signs. They were signs for individuals to place their faith in Jesus Christ being the Messiah and the Son of God. They were signs get, to give an understanding of Jesus' authority, His power, His purpose. And throughout the Gospels, there are different reactions to the signs or miracles of Jesus. Some saw these as the evidence that Jesus was in fact the Christ, He was the Messiah. Some uh, acknowledged the signs but debated their relevance or their meaning. Some believed in the signs, but even though they saw them or experienced them, those signs did not generate a genuine faith. And then there were some whom Jesus had to rebuke because they continually wanted more and more signs uh, for Him to do for them as if He was there for their entertainment. Now, the sign of water to, to wine is a lesson on faith, and that is going to be our focus this morning, is the act of faith and what we can learn about faith through this passage. And the demonstration of this sign is what is known as a call of the age of fulfillment. Jesus' sign at the wedding was not to produce drunkenness, it was not to produce debauchery, but rather it was to reveal His fulfilling of the prophecies of the Old Testament. 
In the Old Testament, the abundance of wine or new wine spoke of God's people being restored into a proper relationship with Him. And this relationship throughout Scripture is frequently referred to as a marriage. When God's people were unfaithful, they were titled prostitutes or adulterers. When God's people were, were faithful, it was typically in the views of terms of marriage. And so there's a lot in this text we're going to deal with. Uh, the three things we're really going to be focused on is Jesus' response to his mother. You may be familiar with what he says to her. The abundance in wine and the meaning of it. And who this sign or miracle was intended for. And so we're going to be doing these three issues to gain an understanding of what faith is in our life. As a side note, most of Jesus' signs or miracles were done in public. This particular sign was only done for a few people to see. Jesus' mother Mary, of course Jesus himself, the disciples, and the servants who carried out Jesus' instructions. All other signs or miracles of Jesus were done in public except one, and that's when Jesus walked on water and that was only for his disciples to see. Well, in John chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, the word of the Lord says, On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My, hours, my hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification. He's holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, but when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. <clears throat> so our text opens up in verse 1 on the third day. This is a timestamp of one of the last timestamps that John gives us in the gospel bearing his name. It is connecting it to the events that happened in this, the days before when Philip met Peter, Andrew, John, and Philip and Nathaniel. And more specifically, it's, it's connecting it to Jesus' encounter with Nathaniel and when Nathaniel came to understand that Jesus was, in fact, the Son of God. The setting of this event is a wedding at Cana, as you can see in verse 1, to which Jesus' mother, Jesus and his disciples, were invited to attend. And I think that's a pretty smart thing to do as we're familiar with this passage to invite Jesus to your wedding. How many here think that Jesus received more invitations to wedding af weddings after this event? <laughs> invite him, man. Food will never go out and the wine will never run dry. That's not the point of the passage. But I wonder if Jesus became very popular to be invited. The issue presented to Jesus by his mother is that the wine had run out. And it may not seem significant to us, and we may be able to understand Jesus' reaction to her bringing to his attention, but if we were to understand the Jewish culture and the Jewish wedding ceremony, then we'd understand why Mary's bringing it to attention. Mary, who brings it, before Jesus, most likely brought it because she had some sort of catering responsibility at this wedding. Many people believe that Mary and Jesus were somehow related to either the, the bride or the groom who were being married, most likely the bride, since the account of the lack of wine would fall upon him. 
In the Jewish custom, a wedding ceremony, now get this, because I know Zane and Mackenzie, you're preparing. A Jewish wedding would last at least a week. <laughs> and up to two weeks. Now, Mackenzie, you can take a sigh of relief, because a Jewish wedding, the responsibility to feed the guest and to give the guest drinks belonged solely on the groom. Not the groom's parents, but the groom himself. And so if something were to run out during a Jewish wedding, it would bring disgrace upon the newlyweds and shame upon the new marriage. This is why Mary comes before her son Jesus to tell him that there is a lack of wine because Mary does not want these newlyweds and this new marriage to begin in shame. They would have been perceived as a couple and a groom, a man, who is unable to provide for their guests, and their ceremony would have brought immediate disgrace on the marriage that had just begun. Now, as Mary brings the attention to Jesus, did you notice how Jesus responds in verse 4? Woman, what does this have to do with me? And my hour has not yet come. Now, first off, in the Gospel of John, Mary is never mentioned by name. She's only referred to as the mother of Jesus. In the Gospels of Matthew and Luke, she's given more of a role within the story of Jesus. But John admits that. He continues to refer her as the mother of Jesus. It's not to belittle Mary or her role in, in Jesus Christ. Because when you go to the end of Jesus' life, when he's on the cross, he once again refers to his mother as woman. And in that situation, he is transferring the obligation of care to John the Apostle. But at the same time, he is bringing a rebuke to Mary. He is rebuking her on an account that we'll understand in a second. But can you imagine, guys, if you were to speak to your mother the way Jesus did in this moment, if your mother gave you an instruction and your response was, woman, Now, I know what my mom would do, because I have a very good Southern Baptist traditional mom. She would look me in the eye, she would get my attention by using Michael. You know, you all know me as Pastor Mike, but mom calls me Michael. And there's always that tone that moms can use, Michael, and so you know you better make eye contact. And she would remind me if I ever responded to her in that way, Michael, I brought you into this world. You know how it ends, don't you? I can take you out. Of course, Mary doesn't have that leeway with Jesus, right? She can't respond to Jesus the way that our mothers may respond to her. But again, Jesus is not belittling her, calling her woman. But at the same time, he is rebuking his mother. And this is one point in time I would tell us all not to be like Jesus. Do not rebuke your mother or she may give you the right hand of fellowship. But his question is, what does this have to do with me? And it's an interesting question, and it's hard to understand that in the English face value, but what he's asking Mary is, what common ground do we have with this current situation that there is a lack of wine? What, what business is it in, of ours? And then he reminds her that my hour has not yet come. And John's Gospel uses that phrase, hour, to refer to the ultimate glorification of Jesus Christ on the cross and His resurrection. 
And so what he's doing here, what the Spirit has led John to do, is to entice us as a reader to want to know what is the hour to which his time is coming. What is the significance of that? Now Mary's goal is for Jesus to take action concerning the shortage of wine at the wedding so there isn't an embarrassment. But Jesus' goal is for Mary to understand the relationship through a lens of faith. And what we learn from this interaction between a mother and a child is the relationship of faith. Just think how hard this would have had to be for Mary, the mother of Jesus. She brought Jesus into this world. She nurtured him as a child. She saw his very first step. She took care of him and she clothed him. The absence of Joseph in this story seems to imply that Joseph has already passed on, which means that Jesus has now become the breadwinner of the family. He has been the provider for Mary, her child. But in this moment, Jesus is trying to teach his mother Mary that she could no longer look at him as her child. Mary needed to understand she needed Jesus in a much greater way. She did not need Jesus to be her son. She needed Jesus to be her Savior. So sometimes we have to have a rebuke from God as well. A rebuke and love like Jesus gives Mary so we can understand this relationship we have with God through the faith that He has given us. One commentator writes that the celebration had run out of wine and Jesus had indicated that the matriarchal privilege could not be used to reestablish the honor of the household. Jesus was not being directed by his mother, but by a determined hour. The point of the story here is that the person in charge is no longer Jesus' mother. Jesus' response to Mary isn't to say he didn't love her. He obviously loved her. He loved all people. That's why he came. His response to Mary is to allow Mary to know that she has no authority over him as the Son of God. Mary could not command God in the flesh to produce a miracle. And it's when Mary takes the proverbial back seat and relinquishes control to Jesus that Jesus acts. Verse 5 of our passage is the representation of Mary's faith that Jesus could provide a remedy to the current process, but not the representation of Mary's motherly authority over Jesus. A.W. Tozer wrote that faith is not the key to get what you want. Faith is not some magical formula that no, no matter who uses it, saved or unsaved, God has to act upon it. Such is religious lunacy and borders on witchcraft. Firmly believe that true faith rises in the soul of a man or woman who will fall on his face before an open Bible and allow God to be the God in his life. Faith. And our relationship to faith calls us to let go of control. Faith calls us to remember we're not in the driver's seat. Our faith in God does not require God to do anything else for us other than save us. Our faith is trusting God will provide what is needed, but those provisions may not come on our terms or even in our timing. Faith is saying that we trust God and whatever God provides or doesn't provide, it is right and it is good. And when Mary relinquishes control of this issue, it was then that God stepped in and provided. And see, our faith is not controlling the issue. 
Because when we try to control an issue, we're actually saying that we're going to do what God is supposed to do or what God is wanting to do. Rather, our faith calls us to release the issue to God so that He can do what needs to be done. And you see in our text, once Mary releases the issue to Jesus, Jesus provides by, taking, by giving instructions to the servants. He tells them in verse 6 to fill the six stone water jars. And John is pointing out the original purpose of these jars were for the Jewish rites of purification. We can't overlook that. These were for ceremonial washing standards of washing their hands and washing their feet and washing the utensils that would go on during this ceremony. The mentioning of the purpose of the jars was most likely to point to significance of this event. Jesus was not only coming to provide the means for salvation, but He was coming to provide the means of our purification before a holy God. These jars would have been made of stone, and so it would have been very difficult to move even when empty. Impossible to move when full, filled to the brim. I mean, you're talking about, if you do the math, there's six stone jars, 20 to 30 gallons each. That's a lot of gallons. That's 120 to 180 gallons filled to the brim. Impossible to move. So what these servants would have to do is they would have to go out to the well, draw the water from the well, and come back and fill up. And it doesn't tell us how many times they had to do this, but this would have been a very laborious task. Why would they have been so willing to take the instructions of Jesus? Perhaps they heard the stories of things going on. We have to keep in mind at this moment, Jesus had already done a solo tour in his ministry. He'd already healed and he'd already taught. He'd already been in the synagogue. So maybe they heard the news traveling around about Mary's son, Jesus, and they thought, huh, maybe he can do something cool here too. Maybe they were at a point that we sometimes get where they just felt they had nothing to lose. There's no more wine, so what's, what's the harm in filling these with water and seeing what happens? If nothing else, we've got water to drink or water to cleanse ourselves with. But after they go back and forth filling these stone jars, 120 to 188 gallons, Jesus delivers His final instruction to them in verse 8, Draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. The master of the feast is the head waiter, so the individual who's overseeing the entire ceremony. He's making sure that there's adequate food and drink for people. And when food was taken out to the guests, he would stare at it and look at it. He would have tried it to make sure it was okay. When wine or new wine was brought in, he would have tasted it to make sure that it was adequate for the situation. We can kind of think of it as like a head chef at a good restaurant who sees the place before they go out to the table. But again, notice the faith of the servants. When Jesus says for them to take it to him, the end of verse 8, they took it. I always wonder, though, when did the water turn to wine? When did that happen? Was it while they were filling it? Was it while they were drawing it out? Was it while they were carrying it through the wedding ceremony? Was it when the master of the ceremony grabbed the cup and as he took it up to his hand? I believe it was sometime in that transferring from the servants to the master. The reading implies when the master drank of the cup, the water now became wine. So sometime in the faith of the servant handing to the master and him taking the drink, it happened. It, it transformed. Now just put yourself in the servant's shoes for a second. You know what you put into the stone jars, right? What would you put in there? Water. 
you know what you drew out and poured into the cup. What was it? And so you should know what's going to be in the cup that the master ceremony drinks, right? Water. But it's not. It's wine. And, and the master of the ceremony responds in such a way of, this is amazing. How did you bring such good wine at the very end? And you notice what the scripture says. And I don't know if John just put this in for our little nugget of truth, but it says he didn't know, but the servants knew. The servants were aware of what happened leading up to this event. But before that could happen, what we learn from their actions is the work of faith. This would have been a time-consuming job, okay? I don't know if they had like a train of buckets going back and forth. I don't know if they like hoofed it back and forth. We, we aren't told that, but it would have been a time-consuming job that the servants did. They were the ones, the servants, who took the chance. They were the one in this passage that had faith. And by their faith in the instructions of Jesus, that whatever He said, we're going to do it, they showed that there is an act of faith or a work of faith that we must do. If we're going to trust God and we're going to trust His Word, then it must lead to a work or an action. Faith in God is action. It produces work. This is what James alludes to. He says, also by faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. He goes on to write, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Our faith in Jesus, our faith in God, our faith in God's word is only evident if it produces works. An act of obedience. Otherwise, it's just lip service. And our evidence of faith is seen in the works we do throughout our life. Jesus referred to these as fruits, that we would produce fruit. So the work of faith bears the fruit of faith and the seeds of the gospel. The writer of Hebrews says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things not seen. Faith, in this passage, Hebrews 11 verse 1, is the action of, and the word assurance is the object or subject of the sentence. It is the certainty of a believer that they have, by faith, they will act out in assurance of what they cannot see and what they may not even be able to comprehend. The word conviction in the verse Hebrews 11.1 means the evidence of proof. I mean, faith is the objective grounds upon which the subjective confidence may be based, writes D.L. Allen. Such faith springs from a personal encounter with God. This kind of faith enables one to venture into the future supported only by the Word of God. And such faith has the capacity to unveil the future so that the solid reality of events, as yet unseen, can be grasped by the believer. This assurance and conviction only comes with a faith that is active and at work. The working of our faith isn't to prove ourselves to God. The Bible tells in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, that not only is our salvation a gift, but our faith is a gift as well. Our salvation and faith are gifts by God, so we come before God and pray, God, give me more faith. He doesn't have to give us more salvation. We have all the salvation we need. We are saved eternally, forgiven, past, present, and future. But our prayer should be, Lord, give me more faith. 
which may require more time in a deeper study of God's Word, requiring us to give up our time and our focus. It may require us to be put in circumstances that require us to live out our faith, which a lot of times are very uncomfortable. But Lord, give me more faith. Allow me to work and live out my faith in this life to show that I actually do trust you. Well, after the servants follow Jesus' instructions, they take this seemingly cup of water to the master of the feast, and he's astonished. Look there in verse 10. He says to them, to the bride or to the groom, everyone serves the good, that word good means fine or best. Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, and that phrase literally means that people are drunk at this wedding, then the poor or cheaper inferior wine, but you have kept the best, the good wine, until now. So our passage reveals a marriage ceremony on the verge of shame, but is now proclaimed in excellence. We have to keep in mind the ceremony is probably drawing to a close. Probably why they ran out of wine. At least we're hoping so, right? <laughs> they would have had plenty of wine to go around, and the reason if I ran out is it's drawing to a close. And so with that in mind, there is no possible way the guests at the ceremony, even if this is a two-week or a month-long wedding ceremony, there's no way they could have drank all the wine to which Jesus provided unless they were going to get alcohol poisoning. And Jesus didn't do this so they could practice drunkenness or debauchery. The language of the master of the feast implies that the guests were already drunk. So why does Jesus make so much wine? Jesus did this to show the abundance of his provision to those who live in faith. Again, the sign of abundant wine from the Old Testament was the revelation of God's kingdom having arrived. And so with our final thing, we see the result of faith. The result of faith is we did to enjoy a God of abundance. A God of abundance. We did to enjoy a relationship with a God who loves us more than we will ever be able to fathom on this side of eternity. We did to love and serve a God who has forgiven all of our sins. The ones we are aware of and the ones we haven't even encountered yet. He's the God of abundance. He's the God who is holy, 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 yet because He has adopted us as His, ch as His children, gives us abundant access to Him. Nothing can stop us from accessing God as His children. He invites us into the throne room of grace because we're marked with His Spirit. He's the God of abundance. God does not give and will never give 50%. There's a lot of voting commercials going on right now, like, well, you know, I'm only going to get 40%, or I'm only going to whatever, because I guess 40% actually vote. God won't give 40%. God doesn't give 50%. God doesn't even give 99%. The God of abundance has gone all in for us. All in. That's Jesus Christ. He went all in for us that we might be saved, forgiven, and given eternal life. And this is the result of faith, that our God does not do part of the work or half of the work or go half-hearted into the work. He goes all in. That's the God we trust. See, do Cruz writes, the glory of Jesus revealed both in His ability to change water to wine and also in His grace in providing an abundance of quality wine to spare the bridegroom embarrassing loss of faith. 
The water parts were ceremonial washing denote the provisions of the Old Covenant, while the provision of abundant wine denotes the blessings of the kingdom. This sign or miracle wasn't just to keep the party going. The purpose was to reveal and to manifest Jesus' glory and lead His disciples to a place of a deeper belief. Verse 11, This is the first of the signs Jesus did at Canaan Galilee, and He manifested or revealed His glory and his disciples believed in him. Again, the word is signs. The sign of water to wine allowed the disciples to come to the understanding there was more to Jesus than meets the eye, and there was more to Jesus than they had already understood in this moment. He was drawing them deeper into his abundance. We have to live by faith. And we do it as the servants did, and we do it as Mary did. But where does faith begin? Faith begins by the focus of the exceedingly abundant blessing that God has given us in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came to this earth to die for the sins of the world. He did that on a cross. They placed him in a tomb, but he rose three days later. Many here have already placed your faith in Jesus Christ. You've trusted him that that is going to forgive you for all your sins and give you eternal life. But I wonder, are there some here this morning who have yet to place their personal faith in Jesus Christ? Have you accepted Him as your Lord and Savior? Have you believed that He died for your sins and rose again? And have you confessed Him as your Lord and Savior? This is where faith begins. And if you've yet to do that, I'm going to be standing down here. I'm going to invite you to come down and say, Pastor Mike, I want Jesus to be my Lord and Savior. We'll pray together and we'll celebrate together. But maybe we're here as God's children and we know that we have a faith and we have a trust, but that faith isn't producing the works or the fruit that it should. And we just need to come and kneel before the Father and repent of those things. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up and lead us in a song. This is a time of invitation, and I'm going to invite you to come, but let me pray over us first. Father, thank you for this day. Lord, thank you for your word, and thank you for the faith you give us, and thank you that you continue to give us more faith that we might work out our faith with fear and trembling and our salvation with fear and trembling before you. Father, I pray in this moment for the individuals who are here who do not know you as your Lord and Savior, Lord, that that would change. Right now, your spirit would not let their heart go, that they would know that you're speaking to them and inviting them into a relationship. I also pray for myself, my brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, let us live out our faith so that the world can see it. Let us be the light and salt you call us and command us to be. Let us be the ambassadors you've empowered us to be. Father, you know this world is hurting, this world is confused, this world is angry. And you are the God of peace. You are the God of comfort. You've commissioned us to go out and represent you to a world that desperately needs you and is screaming for you. I thank you for this day. I thank you for allowing us again to open your word and be together in it. Let this time of invitation be nothing but glorifying to you. And praise all in the name of Jesus.